0: Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown the Podcast. From the historic Zone Radio
1: studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey there, good to see you once again. Welcome into Downtown the Podcast. Rich Kimball and Carrie Haskell with you, and brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Behold, episode Number 268, Music Legends. Yeah, I would say so this week. We've got a pair for you on this week's Downtown. Between them, they've sold, oh, I don't know, about 180 million records over the years. I guess that would count as legends indeed. A little bit later on, the great Carlos Santana will visit with us, talk about his career, the importance of uh, gratitude and spirituality in his music and life, and his current tour. Up first, though, uh, a man who has sold over 70 million records. He's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's got the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. And he has done it all. Uh, musician, producer, songwriter, co-founder of AM Records, painter, sculptor, and a philanthropist who is still out there touring on the road uh, right now with his talented wife, vocalist Lonnie Hall. What a treat it was to talk with the great Herb Alpert. Well, hello there, Herb. How are you this morning?
2: Well, I'm feeling pretty good. Feeling pretty good. Get a chance to do what I love to do. I'm blowing the horn right now, practicing, getting ready for the concerts.
1: Well, that's wonderful. Yeah, you've had a busy spring and early summer, and you you head back out on the road on the 25th in Charlotte, and you'll be up here in New England for a couple of shows, the 29th at the Cabot Theater in Beverly, Mass., and at the Portsmouth Music Hall on Sunday July 30th, uh, what will people see when they go out to, to check out you and your supremely <laughs> talented way? <laughs> they're
2: they're going to hear some good music. You know, we've been doing about 50 concerts a year and having a great time. Uh, we'll do a, you know, obviously we'll do a Tijuana Brass medley, and my wife, Lonnie, will sing a Brazilian, um, you know, Brazil 66 medley, and then around that it will be just some great songs that we love to play. It's very spontaneous, but it'll be, uh, I mean, we've had tremendous reaction for the last 15 years. And um, I'm doing it, you know, not as a, a victory tour for me. I'm, I'm doing it because I, I love to do it. I, I've had this opportunity to sell so many records or CDs or whatever you call them these days. Maybe there's zeros and ones now. But <laughs> uh, I feel like, you know, I get a chance to make a certain amount of people really happy with the music. And it makes me feel good, gives me energy. And um, that's why I'm out there.
1: And is it is it perhaps more fun than it was in the days when you were you were doing the Tijuana Brass records? You know, essentially note for note when you performed live.
2: Well, it's note for note, but it's you know it's uh, very spontaneous. I, I try to be in the moment of my life when I'm playing. Um, so it's actually more fun for me now because it's easier for me to play the trumpet at my age now than it was uh, 50 years ago, 60 years ago.
1: Well, you picked up the trumpet at an early age. You were, I think, eight years old in a music appreciation class, and, and you've said the trumpet gave you your voice. What did you mean by that?
2: Well, I'm an introvert. I'm a card-carrying introvert. So it, when I was eight years old, and I, I was struggling making a sound out of the trumpet because I, I thought you'd just blow hot air into it. and You know, obviously, it have, you have to buzz into the mouthpiece. Uh, once I started getting a little... Um, sound out of it and, and having fun doing it, I realized that this instrument was talking for me. It was saying the things that I couldn't get out of my mouth. So it's been a great friend of mine for so many years. And then it backfired. I had a, a, a problem playing the trumpet for a while. And around 1969, 1970, I was going through a divorce. And I don't know, emotionally, I just it couldn't get the notes out right. I was kind of stuttering through the instrument. So I took lessons from this teacher in uh, New York City his name was Carmine Caruso and he he had a reputation of being the, the troubleshooter you know he would teach brass players from around the world who were having you know some types of pro, pro, you know, problems with with their uh trying to express themselves so I made contact with uh Carmine and um when I met him I said "Carmine, what am I doing wrong? Am I uh you think it might be the trumpet, it might be the mouthpiece, it might be, you know, the setup that I have here? He said, Let me tell you something, kid. <laughs> he said, You're the instrument. That trumpet is just a megaphone. That you just put that trumpet to your lips and it's just amplifying the sounds. He says, You're the instrument. The sound comes from inside you. So that was a big Uh aha for me. And ever since then, uh, I just approached it from another angle. And it's been, it's been great.
1: You had a great teacher early in life too. What did Ben Klaskin teach you?
2: Well, he was a great Russian uh, uh, trumpet player. He was first trumpet with the San Francisco Symphony. And he was, um, he, he was into the mechanics of how to play the horn. Every time he'd hit a, he'd hit a very high note and then he'd Hit my hand on his the bottom of his 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 stomach, where he said that sound it sound needs to come from here, you know that you take a big breath in the you know so he was teaching me that, and oddly enough during the the pandemic where I was kind of sequestered in my own home, I was um thinking about all these teachers that had said you know certain things to me because everybody has a different way of approaching the instrument. So I started thinking about, you know, what he was saying and said, what the other teachers uh, had to say. And I started uh, going back in history in my mind of, uh, you know, these lessons. And I started working on it in a different way for the last three years. And uh, it's been uh, a whole new life for me. I mean, I don't know how to explain this, but, you know, I wake up thinking about Painting, sculpting, and and making music, and uh, always you know, like the pebble out of time. You never, you never get to the promised land. You never mm. get to that place where you think, oh, I got this covered. Now what else? You never get there because there's always. Well, Dizzy Gillespie was a friend of mine. And Dizzy used to say, the closer I get, the farther
0: it looks.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, like a lot of kids, I-, I took up trumpet when I was eight years old because uh, I was always listening to albums like South of the Border and-, and Going Places. How in the world did you develop that that incredible tone of yours that you only have to hear for a moment and know, well, that's Herb Alpert?
2: Well, that's what we're all looking for. You know, when I tell uh, students about... Uh, you know what's the secret of my success? You know, I, there's no secret. You know, I was just probing, practicing, listening, and trying to find my own voice because nobody wants to hear, you know, somebody a copy, carbon copy of someone else's style. And I tried to do that for a while. I was trying to play like Louis Armstrong or Miles Davis or any of the trumpet players. I really Harry James was another one. And uh, I came to the realization: who wants to hear that? I mean, they've already done it. So uh, I was looking for my own voice, and when I hit on this uh, uh, Tijuana brass style, because uh, I heard these records with some some artists, you know, um, recording their their instrument or their voice, overdubbing their voice and and creating this sound. I tried doing that with the trumpet, and uh, out came the Tijuana brass sound. So uh, yeah. I'm very thankful that I found my voice, and I I stuck to it because after I had that first big record, The Lonely Bull, in 1962, I got letters from people. And this one letter from this lady in Germany said, thank you, Mr. Alpert, for sending me on this vicarious trip to Tijuana. And I kind of chuckled when I read the letter, and then I thought to myself, wow, that, that music was so visual for her. That uh, it transported her about eight thousand miles to uh, Tijuana mexico, so i I thought about mm, I want to make that type of music, the music that kind of takes you someplace, opposed to you know like elevator music, which is nice it's, it's, it's soothing, but it doesn't take you any particular uh, it's not supposed to mm. but the music i'm i'm making i'm I'm always trying to do something that's uniquely my own if i if I play a song that's uh, standard song or a song that people recognize, I try to do it in a way that hasn't been done quite that way before for my own pleasure. I mean, the, the truth of it all is I make music for myself. I'm not, not trying to uh, you, um, anticipate what, what the public might like. I, I just, if, it li- if I like it and it gives me goosebumps and it makes me feel good when I listen to it after I play it, um, I'll put it out and see uh, if someone else might feel the same way.
1: We're talking with Herb Alpert here on Downtown. But well, you're still doing that today. The most recent album is so good, Sunny Side of the Street. And I think my favorite cut on there is a fantastic a new arrangement and version of Little Anthony's Going Out of My Head.
2: I'm doing that all day.
1: <laughs> I love it. I love it. That is great. Uh, so, 1965. But you had such a big year. The uh, the whipped cream and other delights album came out. That blew up. It drove up the sales of uh, earlier albums along the way. So, how did a a self described introvert handle that level of attention?
2: Well, the attention is fine on the stage. It doesn't bother me. I'm I'm great. I can play for thousands of people, and I feel good about it uh no it's just that one-on-one I, with one person i'm fine but two it's okay all of a sudden when there's a crowd and a lot of people around it i, I don't know i just get anxious about it don't feel that comfortable
1: i i tell people it's the same thing i, I tell people i'm a professional extrovert but in real life i'm an introvert
2: oh well, now that's interesting
1: <laughs> i want to talk about one of your biggest records 1968's this guy's in love with you. You're the only artist to ever have number one songs as both a musician and as a vocalist. Was it the producer of the TV special's idea to have you sing that Burt Bacharach song?
2: Well, he didn't pick out the song. He said, why don't you try singing a song? I'm tired of photographing you with a trumpet in your mouth. So <laughs> I called one of my best friends, da-da-da, Burt Bacharach. <laughs> hey, so I said, Burt, is there a song you find yourself maybe whistling in the shower, or song. maybe you didn't get the right recording. Um, and he sent me This Girl's In Love With You that he recorded with Dion Warwick. And I thought I could handle the song. Obviously, they, the lyric needed to be changed for a male voice. And uh, it all fell into place. Bert did the arrangement. He played piano on it. And <clears throat> we had a jolly good time Except you know, at that the I had a little <clears throat> little conference with Bert at one point when the song ends and I pick up the trumpet and, and start playing the melody. I wanted this little space there, and Bert said, "Don't do that. Don't do that space there. The radio's not going to like it." <laughs> so this is when I really realized, man, I got to go with my own gut. I, I had to put that space there. I think the space works, mm. and of course, after the record was number one in the country, Bert said, "Yeah, that was a good idea to put the
3: space."
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, and is it true, Herb, that that vocal that we heard on record was the first take?
2: Was the first? It was the first take. Wow. Yeah, it was. I was just seeing if the key was right, so I went to the studio after we had the track, and I I sang it, and. Um, Walked into the control room and and there were a bunch of singers there and, and musicians. They said, "Don't touch it. Don't touch that voice." <laughs> I said, "What do you mean? Don't touch it?" He said, "Don't touch it. It was perfect." I said, "We're just doing it as a demo." He said, "No, you communicated the feeling perfectly. Leave it." Anyways, that was the voice. And we I, <clears throat> overdubbed a couple, you know, eye candy things in in that uh, uh, record, but other than that, it was that first
1: first voice. You're a partnership with Jerry Moss that created one of the, the great record companies of all time, a known, a known as a real artist company. And is that because uh, much like with your own music, it wasn't about making hits. It was about getting uh, the best out of those individual artists.
2: Well, and it, and it was also, we didn't want to get the beat of the week. We didn't want to, you know, listen to the top 10. We didn't want to get records that sounded like those records. We wanted to be original and also, um, we were in the, uh, the, 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 artists that travel the road less traveled, the, the ones, you know, the Cap Stevens of the world, or the Carpenters, or the, the artists that just kind of have something to say that wasn't quite what was happening with the, uh, record charts at the moment, and we felt if we get a, get great artists that have a, the passion and the intentions are right, it would just, be a matter of time before they would flag themselves down to the runway and find out, you know, what the audience might like.
1: But you were such a great A&R guy, too. Uh, You had recorded a version of Close to You, but you knew that would be perfect for Karen and Richard.
2: Well, I thought I was going to release that record uh, for, uh, for myself when I did it, and then I you know, I tell this in concert because it really happened. I, I, my head engineer at A&M, Larry Levine, who's a dear friend of mine, I said, after we mixed the record, I said, Larry, be honest with me. How do I sound singing? And he said, you sound terrible singing this song. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
2: so I said, what do you mean I sound terrible? He said, you know, it doesn't fit you. It's like uh, maybe the wrong. He says, I don't know. I just don't feel it. I, so I put it away in my drawer. And in 1970, I did. I gave it to Richard Carpenter. Uh, they recorded it once, and I heard the recording, and I told them, "No, that's not. That's not. We got to try that one again because Karen was playing drums, and she was a very good drummer, but not a recording drummer. You know, she had a light sound, and it wasn't. Didn't. It didn't seem like it was radio friendly. This record. So you know, they got the wrecking crew.
1: Mm. Get Hal Blaine so, on those drums, right?
2: Yeah, it was Hal Blaine playing drums, and that, that, that put it over the top. Of course, it was a great arrangement by uh, Richard Carpenter. He did all the vocal arrangements, too. And uh, it was the two of them. It wasn't just Karen with that magnificent voice. It was the two of them, and Richard knew exactly how to get the most out of her
1: magnificent talent. He also signed a wonderfully talented group, Sergio Mendez and Brazil 66. And their talented lead vocalist. You've got a big anniversary. Will it be 50 years of marriage to Lonnie later this year?
2: Yeah, I'm a lucky guy. I married an angel. You know, it was all uh, serendipitous because uh, Lonnie's from Chicago. Sergio happened to hear her at a club she was singing at, signed her to uh, his group and uh when Jerry Moss, my partner and i in a, uh, auditioned them in nineteen sixty six we were knocked out We just there was something about that sound and Sergio's talent that um you know made us want to sign them and we did Lonnie and I became friends. I produced the first few albums by sergio i did that that record that really broke things loose for them uh and Oh, I couldn't be more grateful. We, we've had a wonderful relationship. She's a world-class singer and a world-class person.
1: And, and did you know that uh, she was the perfect person for you when she, I think this came up in the documentary, that she called you out for not being true to yourself?
2: Well, she's, uh, she's an honest, you know, she's, she was a street lady from Chicago. <laughs> and, uh, you know, after the lonely, I got all that success. We bought. I bought a house in the big part of L.A. in you know, Beverly Hills, and I had a party one night. Ex-wife uh, and Sergio and the group was divided along with lots of other friends. She was there, and the night, uh, the day or two after that, we were traveling together because we were traveling with Sergio and the group for uh, about a month or two, opening the show for us. She came over to me on the airplane and said, uh, to of, thank you, Mr. Albert. You know, <laughs> very formal for inviting me to the party. I said, well, that's, uh, thanks for coming. Did you have a good time? She kind of stared out into space. And she looked at me and said, well, not really. <laughs> I said, well, what was the problem? She says, that house doesn't look anything like you. Wow, and I remember stopping for about thirty seconds, kind of staring at her, thinking, "Holy man, she she saw right through me." Because <laughs> that's what I was feeling. <laughs> uh, so yeah, one thing led to another, and we're uh, we're great together.
1: Well, that's obvious, so right there. You had a big hit, what, seventeen years after the lonely bull. You're back on the top of the charts in 1979 with the the wonderful song, Rise, uh, brought to you by your nephew, Randy. But uh, it sounds like a key component of that record's success was that you you didn't give in to the urge to do what was popular at the time and and go with a more disco sound.
2: Well, he originally had it as a disco record. It was designed to be played at 120 beats per minute, uh, 120 beats per minute. Which doesn't mean anything to the public out there, but that's that typical boom, 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 boom to disco groove. And I said, "Look at me! This is a beautiful melody. Let's slow this thing down." This was in the studio while we were uh, recording some other things, and then that song came came about that we were going to play it. So I said, "Let's do it slowly, so people can dance together. Make it more sex- sexy and sensual." And uh, we slowed it down, and uh, that was another case where that was just the first take. We we did it, a- Abraham Laboreal was playing bass, and he put on this beautiful thumping bass line that, that my uh, nephew Randy designed. Um, and one thing led to another, and the song just was a huge success. It was... Uh, didn't catch me off guard because I, when I heard it in the in playback in the studio, I I got a little that one of those feelings of oh this, this, this is good. I remember going up to Julius Wechter who played marimba on it. He was a, a friend of mine. And he was staring out the control room window, and I came up from behind him and I said, Julius, man, what do you think of this one? <laughs> and he looked. At me, he turned around and said, I hate it. I said, What do you mean you hate it? He said, "I don't like that boom, boom, boom bass
3: drum."
2: I said, "Man, you're missing the boat. Listen, <laughs> listen to it without thinking. Just listen to it." And uh, yeah, he was another guy that came up to me uh, after it was number one in the country. He said, "Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean about it now." <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, you're still making great music. I mentioned uh, the album you released last year, Sunny Side of the Street. I understand a new one is coming soon, uh, maybe as soon as this fall?
3: Uh,
2: that you have to ask my nephew. You know, I don't handle that that anymore. I just leave it to him. I think he said in September, but I'm not sure. Uh,
1: now, when it comes to your art, it's more than just music. Uh, you're painting Uh, Has been displayed all over the world. You began sculpting in the early 80s, and and I read in an interview where you said that whether it's music, sculpting, painting, for you it's always about the feel.
2: I think that's what it is, period. All the arts, all the art forms are the same. And uh, if you think too hard, if you see a painting that you uh, try to analyze, or a sculpture you try to analyze, you're missing the boat. Or a song, you know. If you, the song either really gets you or it, it doesn't, you know how sometimes you're driving in your car and you hear a song and you say, "Whoa, what's that? I want to like to hear that again." That's because you're not thinking; it's just it, it hits you in the right spot. So I think a lot of people try to overanalyze the art, and I don't think you can. I think it's it's all about a feeling. It's a um, it's a mysterious. Um, concept but you know it's like when you see an artist on the screen that might not be that good looking or they they might be you know have the wrong elements but there's there's something great about what they do on that screen and you can't take your eyes off of them and in that same scene there's a bunch of beautiful people but you got this other guy that just is a wonderful uh, communicator of a feeling and that's I don't know it's, it's hard to explain this but yeah I think it's the feel I think that's why people uh some people like my music mm. it's, uh, I, I, but that's what I try to put out there i I'm, I'm I'm just trying to put out a feeling that gets me when I hear it and then I feel well if, if I can feel something from it, maybe some other people might
1: and did you learn some of that when you uh, worked as a as a young man with Lou Adler and uh, and you wrote for Sam Cook?
2: Cook was uh, was something special. We worked for that company that when Sam had uh, you send me, and then Lou and I started writing songs with Sam. We wrote Wonderful World, Don't Know Much About History. We wrote that song with him. But I watched him. I watched the way he operated. He was very um, seed of the past, you know. I don't. He wasn't like a schooled musician, but he had something, and. um yeah, I remember him telling me, the you know, he'd carry around this notebook with him that had a bunch of lyrics, and he, he was excited about this one lyric. He showed it to me, he said, Herbie, what do you think of this lyric? I looked at it, and I was thinking to myself, I didn't say it to him, I said, man, this is the corniest lyric I've ever <laughs> seen. But I wasn't going to tell him that. I said, well, what does the song sound like? He picked up his, his guitar, started playing this corny lyric, I looked at him like, "Wow, what kind of magic just happened?" But you know, the way he he where he put the notes, the feeling he had while singing it, his passion while he had while singing it, I was thinking to myself, "Man, it ain't what you do; it's the way how you do it." And that was the thing that he taught me, and it stuck with me, you know, to this moment. Yeah, that's, it, I think it's all about that. It's all about the way you do it.
1: I work with high school theater students, and you have been uh, so generous, uh, you and Lonnie, through the Herb Alpert Foundation, supporting uh, artistic endeavors at UCLA, Cal Arts, uh, the Harlem School of the Arts, and more. Why is arts education so important?
2: I I think music uh, and arts—they unite us all. It's the international code. I mean, it's like—I think we're all creative when we're born, and and. Uh, we have this imagination, and it's kind of instead of growing into it, we grow out of it because we're not. Uh, our politicians don't seem to get the get the message how important it is.
1: Herb Albert appearing at the Portsmouth Music Hall with Lonnie Hall on Sunday, July 30th. Herb, uh, thank you so much for the great music through the years, the inspiration for showing us. How to Lead an Artistic Life. It's been a real treat for us to talk with you, and I'm so looking forward to seeing you and Lonnie and the band uh, down in Portsmouth.
2: Oh, great, Rich. Thank you so much. You won't be disappointed. We do it for the right reasons, and uh, love to see uh, you know, as many people as we can there.
1: Herb Alpert with us here on downtown. A quick word from Cross Insurance, and when we return... Carlos Santana,
2: next. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family,
0: and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit crossinsurance.com.
3: Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.
1: Guest on downtown, another music legend, another member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He has sold over 100 million records through the years, has won 10 Grammy Awards, a trio of Latin Grammys as well, and is out on the road with his 1001 Rainbows tour. Great to talk with Carlos Santana here on downtown. Hello. Hello, Carlos. How are you, sir? Pretty good. Yourself? I am wonderful. Thank you. Appreciate you making some time for us today. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We're so looking forward to the show uh, here in Bangor. Now, you wrapped up the Blessings and Miracles Tour in May. Have you been able to take a little break at all?
0: Oh, yes. we. Uh, my wife and I, Cindy, we uh, We came to uh, replenish in Kauai. Well,
1: that's not a bad place to replenish right
0: there. No, it's not. <laughs> uh, plenty of coconut, real coconut water and sugarcane cane juice. Um, you know, so... We're very grateful, very, very grateful.
1: I wanted to ask you about that. It seems like gratitude plays a big role in your life.
0: You know, nothing happens in this planet without gratitude. Gratitude is um, you can't eat without a mouth. You can't feel without a heart. And gratitude is the best way to communicate straight to God without any static or any, uh, any weird noise, you know. If you want something to ma- manifest in your life, first you have to increase the intensity of gratitude in your life and then uh then the universe uh bestows upon you an avalanche of abundance but it starts with gratitude you know if you don't if you're not gratitude you don't receive nothing you know uh if you don't believe you don't you don't receive but believing in in uh when the first thing I do when I open my eyes before my feet touch the touch the floor, I'm grateful, you know, for the air in my lungs. I'm grateful for all the blessings and miracles. And, you know, just, I'm grateful for everything, music and family and, you know, my wife and love. And, you know, so I, I bathe myself psychologically and spiritually with gratitude. And then I know without any hesitation that I'm worthy of God's love and I will receive whatever I ask.
1: Well, and there's so much spirituality in your music, and it, it doesn't seem to me uh, that it's confined to any particular religious belief. It's just an embrace uh, of the holy.
0: You know, I, I love the way you put it. It's exactly what it is. When you embrace the holy, it's like pretty much is like grabbing a diamond in your hand, and a diamond has many facets, but it's still a diamond. And that's what uh, your, your a heartfelt hug with God you know, you're not going to be in conflict with Christianity or Hindu or Buddhism. You know, it's, 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 it's the same one. It's the same thing, only different.
1: Uh, the tour gets underway soon, and you'll be coming here to Bangor on August 2nd uh, down in Boston at Fenway Park for a couple of shows as well. And I know uh, uh, Cindy will be on the drums, as always, Andy Vargas on vocals. Who else will be in your band? Uh, Ray Green.
0: Ray Green singer, used to be with Tyro Power. Um, let's see, Dave Matthews on piano, he used to play with uh, Eddie James. <laughs> um, let's see, Carl uh, Purrazzo, he used to play with Prince and uh, Sheila So, you know, my band is pretty diverse with multidimensional musicians.
1: Well, and that's always been your story. I, I was talking with someone about your music the other day, and you were playing world music before anybody knew what that term meant.
0: Thank you for saying that. You know, I, I didn't know that that was a term, but later on they gave this word to my brother and brilliant musician Bob Marley. Uh, uh, I think he came He came out in 72, 73, he, although he was doing it since the 60s. But we hit the radio around 68, 69, hard, playing what you just described, world music. The foundation is basically African music, African rhythms, African colors and textures, emotions and feelings.
1: We're talking with Carlos Santana here on Downtown. You are an influence to so many, but you had influences, as all uh, talented artists do. Can you talk about how uh, Gabor Zabo influenced you?
0: Oh, thank you for asking that. You know, Gabor Szabo uh, basically grabbed me by my neck uh, psychologically and spiritually and pulled me away from BB King because I was one of those BB B. King disciples. Uh, there's a lot of people like Peter Green and Michael Bloomfield. We all come from BB to a certain extent, but somehow when with Gabor Szabo, it's like you said, okay, I got you got something else to dip yourself into which is uh, it's called Gypsies from Budapest, you know, Hungarian gypsy mm. music, you know. And so I learned that I can still play the blues, but I do it in, in in a very, very European, Hungarian, elegant music. It's not that the blues is not elegant, but it's on another level of... Uh, uh, it's just another, another frequency.
1: Well, and your version of Black Magic Woman, people may not know, was a medley of... Peter Green's song, and uh, Gabor's Gypsy Queen.
0: Exactly. Thank you for saying that. And on its rush in West
1: Montgomery. Mm. The uh, success that you had in the late 90s with Supernatural, I don't know that anybody could expect that level of success. Uh, Smooth, uh, your collaboration with Rob Thomas, the biggest song in the history of the Billboard charts.
0: You know, I'm so grateful. I think we're second only to Chuck, uh, the, the twist. Oh, Chubby Checker. Chubby Checker, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say Chuck Berry, but it's Chubby Checker. Uh, Yeah. Uh, But, you know, I'm ready for the next one. Uh, I think around the corner there's a new wave. We had Abraxas uh, in Woodstock, and we have Supernatural, and I think there's another one around the corner coming up where Santana gets to assault the four corners of the world again (laughs) with uh, new music and Uh, and music that people know already. But, uh, you know, I just feel really grateful and confident, you know, that uh, God has some things up ahead for for us to share with people.
1: You've worked with so many different artists through the years. What's the key to a good collaboration? Compliment. Mm.
0: Compliment, compliment, compliment. Do not compete or compare.
1: Compliment. You have uh, given back so much uh, through the years as well. Can you talk a little bit about the work done uh, with the Malagro Foundation?
0: My joy. Uh, we love uh, helping children all over the world. Uh, for example, in Africa, we gave two million five hundred clean to Mister Desmond Tutu uh, to help the children who were uh, and their parents who were infected with AIDS back then uh, for uh, clean water and uniforms for the first schools. Uh, we also help uh, Indian reservations. We help people in South America. We help people in the United States, uh, centers where people are, uh, they need shelter, you know. people need uh, What people need more than anything in this planet is a deep sense of self-worth, you know. and And they can only get that by somebody reminding them that they are precious and priceless, you know. Someone needs to remind everyone that you are divine and you are light and divine. And, you know, I think it's time to put aside all that part of the Bible where they, they accuse you of being a wretched sinner. You know, that stuff is like Godzilla religion, and I don't, I don't subscribe to it. You know, I follow Jesus and God, not Godzilla, you know. Uh, I don't follow a God that's cruel. I don't follow corrupt corporations, whether it's religion, you know, Catholics. or or the United States government, you know, because all those things, they're not really who they say they are. They are corrupt corporations, you know, and I think that at this point we need to just wake up and inspire people to have impeccable integrity so we can really have someone represent you and I in the House of Congress and in the White House that has uh, compassion, forgiveness, you know, uh, a higher frequency of... uh, energy.
1: Well, yet, yet another example where the arts could be hopefully an inspiration and a guidebook to our leaders.
0: Yes, I think so. You know, I, I believe I really believe that artists who present spiritual music, they uh, remind the rest of the people that everyone is capable to create and manifest divine miracles
1: and blessings. Well said, indeed. It's a great treat to talk with you, Carlos. Thank you so much for making time for us. I look forward to the show. Uh, be well and uh, safe travels on the road. Thank you. Best of your family. And, and stay happy and have fun. The great Carlos Santana here on Danton. Woo! That was uh, some music expertise and knowledge there over the course of this hour. What fun it was. Our thanks to Carlos Santana and Herb Alpert and you for joining us on Dantan. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time, right here on Downtown.